Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ruth chapter 3. That's Ruth chapter 3. I'm going to read that as we begin. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is it not Boaz, our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of, his heap, at the, end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for my fellow townsmen. Know that you are, for my fellow townsmen, know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if, but if he is not willing to redeem you, and as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came for to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thank you for reading that for us, Mihir. I'm going to ask you just to bow with me, and let's uh, begin just by asking God's blessing on our study of his word. Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful little book tucked away in the Old Testament. It's such a powerful illustration of redemption, such a beautiful picture of your love, your kindness. I pray, Lord, that as we study it and then as we celebrate your kindness to us in Christ through our communion service through the Lord's Supper. I pray that you just fill us this morning with a sense of joy, knowing what it is that, knowing what it means, knowing what it is to be redeemed, to be purchased back by God, to be loved by him. So minister to us, I pray, allow your word to speak to our hearts and change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter uh, two of Ruth, we were introduced to Boaz in verse one. <clears throat> he is called uh, a worthy man. That phrase can be interpreted man of valor or man of strength. He is introduced to us as a man of integrity, a man of character. 
And Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's fields for months now. During the barley harvest, which was in April, and then the wheat harvest, which would have been in May for these last couple of months, she has been um, enjoying the largesse and the kindness and the mercy and the essentially the love of Boaz. <clears throat> but who is Boaz? Um, if you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you find out that Boaz is the son of Rahab the harlot. Rahab was um, that woman who protected the two spies that were sent into Jericho a generation before. It's possible that Salmon, her husband, Boaz's father, was one of those two spies. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. But nonetheless, she became part of Israel along with her family. She married this man named Salmon, and they had a son named Boaz. And so this is who Boaz is. And so after a few months of enjoying Boaz's favor, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, suggests something that seems at first glance incredibly inappropriate. Incredibly inappropriate. So the wheat harvest is over. All the harvesting, the spring harvests are now finished. Um, and they have uh, brought in the harvest and now they are threshing it. They are taking the grain from the, the stalks and putting it all into the barn. And, and uh, what happens after the, the harvest is done and all the threshing is done, all the winnowing is done, uh, is that the harvesters generally have a party. They open a, a, an amphora of wine and they celebrate together the goodness and the kindness of God in providing food for his people. And so Naomi tells Ruth to, to put on some perfume and, and, and uh, her best clothes and go to this celebration. And then she says that when, you, when the party's over, watch where Boaz goes to lay down and sleep. And when he's sleeping, go and uncover his feet. Pull the blanket over yourself and lie down at his feet. So she does this, and it's about midnight, and Boaz wakes up and and is startled. He's shocked. He says, who's there? And Ruth says, it's Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings or your covering over me, for you are a redeemer. You are a kinsman redeemer. You are a family redeemer to me and to Naomi. Now, to understand what's going on here, it's important that we look back at Deuteronomy chapter 25. So if you have your Bible, go to Deuteronomy 25 and just allow me to read for you a couple of verses beginning at verse 5. Deuteronomy 25 says this, verse 5, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Later on, it goes on and explains the reason for that. Verse 9, it talks about the brother is to build up the family or build up the house of the deceased brother. So this is the, the law of the kinsman redeemer. Naomi's son 
Malon died. He was married to Ruth. They had no children. Ruth has now come into the people of Israel. And Ruth needs a kinsman redeemer. Naomi needs someone to look after this family. And so someone close to Naomi is obligated to marry Ruth and raise up children for her husband, who is now deceased. And this was to be done. This was the expected thing to do. If you read that passage a little bit more in a little bit more detail, if the brother or the closest relative was unwilling to perform this duty to marry this widow and raise up children to his brother or to his relative, the, 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 the widow could force that person, that, that brother, that family member, that cousin to come to the gate of the city before the elders and throw a sandal at him and spit in his face to shame him for not doing what he is required to do according to the law of God. And so that's in the back of the story here. That is what is in Naomi's thinking. That is why she tells Ruth to do this thing that seems a little unseemly, a little inappropriate, but essentially it's biblical. It's according to the the law of God. And so Boaz wakes up. There's a woman at his feet. He wakes up and he says, who is this? And, and Ruth says, it's, it's Ruth. And Boaz is blessed. He is so happy. He says, it's just such a wonderful thing that you didn't go after younger men, but you've blessed me with your favor. But there's an issue here. Boaz understands that he is not the closest relative, that there's someone else who is closer than he is. And so he says, stay here tonight and tomorrow we will settle the issue. And if he wants to redeem you, he can, but if not, I will redeem you essentially. And so before dawn, before anybody could see what was going on, they, they parted ways. But before Ruth left, Boaz gives her a, another huge expression of his love, another huge pile of grain. And Ruth goes back to Naomi and tells her all that has happened. She says, Boaz is a good man. He'll make this issue resolved today. So what do we make of this passage? What do you do with a story like this? One of the principles of understanding the Bible is that you allow the New Testament to, to interpret the Old Testament. You allow the New Testament to shed light on the Old Testament. So here's, here's a couple of things we need to understand. These people, if you read the end of the book, we'll get there next week, are in the genealogy of Jesus. These, these Naomi and, uh, I'm sorry, Ruth and Boaz are the great-grandparents of King David. And they're in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also important to know that it happens in Bethlehem, where Jesus is born. It's also important to understand this is a story of redemption, Redemption, the idea of purchasing back, buying someone from slavery and setting them free. It's about a redemption of both a Jewish woman and a Gentile woman, a Moabite woman, Ruth. So essentially we're able to say that the story is a picture. It's an illustration. It's a type, a foreshadowing of how Jesus would buy us back. It's an Old Testament prophecy. It's a story that 
pictures what Jesus will one day do for his people, for his elect people. A love story that pictures the love story that is the gospel. So as we prepare for communion this morning, I'd like to, to, to examine this story and see how it prefigures, how it pictures, how it illustrates what Jesus has done for us in Christ. And there's four things I'd like to point out from this passage of Scripture for you. The first is this, the need that made redemption necessary. The need that made redemption necessary. In verse 1, we read this. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Should I not seek rest for you? That word there, rest, can be translated security, is also used to uh, infer the idea of being at home, being in a place of safety, a place of security. And so Naomi is looking for a place of rest, a place of security, a place of peace for Ruth. And the reason for this is that these women were in abject poverty. The poorest of the poor in Israel were forced to glean. And we talked about that last week, how, how God had established certain laws that farmers were, were not supposed to cut the, their entire field. They were supposed to leave some of it for the very, very poor to go and, and live a subsistence life by, by gleaning in the fields and, and just simply getting by. And that's what Ruth and Naomi had been doing, been doing it for months and it was no way to live. It was a very insecure kind of lifestyle. Elimelech had forfeited his land. And though it was technically still Naomi's, because in the year of Jubilee, it would come back into the family, she had no right to use it. He had forfeited that when he went off to Moab. And so they were in a desperate situation. And it was their need that drove them to this plan, to look for a kinsman redeemer. It was their understanding of and appreciation for the desperate plight that they were in that drove them to seek a redeemer. Their abject poverty caused them to begin to look for a redeemer. And you know, the same thing is true of us. None of us come to the Redeemer. None of us come to Jesus unless we understand the significance of the poverty that we're in. Unless we understand the significance of the plight that we are in. You know, Jesus intends us to appreciate that. It's interesting that the first words of the first sermon that Jesus ever preached were these. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall have the kingdom, right? Jesus intended us to understand, to appreciate our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy. And so he begins his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount, right at the start. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No one comes to Christ unless they understand just how poverty-stricken they are just how spiritually bankrupt they are. And that's a very humbling and a very difficult place to get to, to truly appreciate our desperate need, 
to truly understand the bankruptcy of our situation is something that only the Spirit of God can reveal to a man or to a woman because we are inherently, we're innately proud. It's not something that we willingly grasp. We are inclined to rest in and boast about our self-righteousness. We're inclined to find a certain level of security in our supposed innate goodness. But what the Bible teaches us is that we are no different than Ruth was. If you have your Bibles, flip over from Ruth over to the New Testament to the book of Ephesians and look at how Paul describes the spiritual bankruptcy of of everyone before they come to Christ. Look at what he says in verse 12 of chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Now, that's exactly where Ruth was. She had had no appreciation that Israel anticipated a Messiah coming. She was separated from the commonwealth of Israel, excluded from Israel, strangers to the covenant. She had no sense, no participation in God's covenant people. She was without hope, without a relationship with God. And that is exactly where every single one of us begin in our journey to Christ. That is spiritual bankruptcy. That is poverty of spirit. So many people in our world today are blind to their plight. They don't appreciate it. They don't see it. They don't understand it. They live under the wrath of God, a God who is angry at our sin and has promised to punish our sin, but we're cavalier about it. We shrug it off. The reality is that if we're not in Christ, we are profoundly insecure. We have no rest, we have no security, we have no hope. A lot of people in our culture today question about whether God is angry with sin. Very happy to redefine the definition of sin. They question whether in fact they are sinners or not. They're good people. When they compare themselves to their neighbors, they stand out, they're altruistic, they're kind. They're loving, they're generous, they follow the laws of Canada. Some people reject God's solution. They prefer to try to provide their own way to God through good works or religion or, as I've said, altruism or philanthropy. But like Ruth, like Naomi, the first step in coming to a place of redemption is to admit abject spiritual poverty. To come to that place, as the Old Testament says, where we recognize that our righteousness are as filthy rags in the sight of God. That they're absolutely worthless. That anything that I bring to him on my own and offer to him is worthless. It's absolutely worthless. 
So Jesus says to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, see what, what Ruth and Naomi desperately needed was that place of rest, that place of security. To come to that place where they could sort of say, okay, I'm safe now. I'm safe now. And Jesus says to us, this is his invitation, come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden and you've done all that you can and you've worked so hard, just give up trying because you can't. You can never be good enough. You can never give enough. You can never love enough. You can never serve enough. You can never be holy enough. You can't do it. You can't. Come to me and I'll give you rest. So redemption is a simple concept, but redemption begins when we get to that place of abject spiritual bankruptcy where we know that nothing, nothing, nothing good dwells in me. God's standards are too high. My sin is too deep. It's a gulf that I cannot span. But secondly, the trust that makes redemption possible. The trust that makes redemption possible. So Ruth prepares herself for this, this event. And again, you've got to think about what's going on here. The men have done the harvest. They've opened some wine. Their hearts are married, biblical euphemism, for they're a little bit three sheets to the wind. And she gets dressed, she puts on her best clothes, she washes herself, she puts on some perfume, and she goes down and she's part of this gathering, this celebration. And she's watching where Boaz goes. And she goes and watches and he falls asleep quickly. He's got this blanket over him by the piles of grain. And she waits for a while until he's in a deep sleep. And then she goes and she lifts the blanket at his feet and goes and lays down under the blanket by his feet. Now, <clears throat> if you're reading the book and you haven't got to the end, you kind of think, where's this going? Am I reading the Bible here? This seems more like a Harlequin romance because I know what's going to happen in that book, so is that going to happen here? It looks like a compromising situation. And if Boaz had not been an honorable man, he certainly could have taken advantage of Ruth. I don't think in that culture, and we'll talk about this next week, but in that culture, especially in this book, there's a lot of sexual tension. Don't go into the fields because you don't want to be accosted by those young men. Stay with the women because you're going to find protection there. There's a vulnerability that we read in this book that, that is clear. And Ruth is placing herself in a vulnerable situation. If he was not an honorable man, he could have taken advantage of her. 
but she went ahead. The question is why? And I think the answer is that she trusted Boaz. She absolutely trusted this man. Now, she had watched him. Remember in chapter 2, he, he sees her, he questions his servants about her, and then he begins to speak to her, and he encourages her, and he affirms her, and then he blesses her, and it seems that he has continued to bless her abundantly, extravagantly, over the previous two months. And she knows something about his character. She knows something about who he is. She sees something about his integrity, his love. And it's on that basis, on the basis of that trust, that she approaches him. And she asks him to cover her with his wings, his garments. It's a symbol of protection, symbol of love. You know, our redemption is predicated on that same thing. Our redemption is predicated on the same thing. When we come to that place of abject spiritual poverty where we understand that there is nothing good that dwells in me. I cannot save myself. I am hopeless before a holy God. He is holy. I am a sinner. The gulf is too wide. There's nothing I can do to save myself. We come to that place when we mourn for our sin. We recognize the depth of our sin and the holiness of God. We are left We are left absolutely helpless, and we must, as a consequence, look for a salvation, a savior, a redeemer outside of ourselves. It's essentially what happened to Ruth. We come to that place by God's grace where we trust Jesus enough to place our lives at his feet. We come to that place where we see who Jesus is. We understand what he has done. We appreciate his love. We appreciate his mercy. We fall in love with him because of his great love for us. And on the basis of his integrity, his character, we simply trust him and we place ourselves at his feet. And we say, cover me. Spread your covering over me. By grace, we are given a confidence in who he is and what he has accomplished to redeem us. We understand that it is fully, completely, absolutely sufficient. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling, right? That old hymn that Billy Graham made famous, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. We come to that place where we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior, and we simply trust. He doesn't call us to do anything. He doesn't call us to climb a ladder. He doesn't call us to go through any kind of spiritual gymnastics. He simply says, fall into my arms, and I'll catch you. Believe, trust, rest, and we're saved. Ruth was able to look at Boaz for a couple of months. She had talked to people about him. She had observed him, and she saw the integrity, the character of this potential redeemer. How do we know? Well, the only way we know is we look at the gospel. 
We open the scriptures, we hear it preached, we read it. A brother or sister shares the message with us and we begin to become enamored with this thing that doesn't make sense at first. The first time you hear it, it's foolishness. You struggle to understand it. It just seems a little bit strange. And then the more you hear it, the more you understand it, the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you see how beautiful this story really is. You see the magnificence of the cross. You see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And suddenly you begin to believe as the Spirit of God works in our lives, taking away the blinders, taking away the pride that would want us or cause us to sort of stand in our own self-righteousness, he humbles us. We come to that place of bankruptcy and we see the glory of the cross. And we simply trust Jesus. We simply trust, just as I am, with all my warts and all my sin and all my failure, without one plea, except that thy blood was shed for me. You trust. You trust the gospel. And then the love that made redemption a reality. Boaz wakes up. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman was at his feet. That's got to shock you. I don't care who you are. (laughs) He says, who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Essentially what's happening here is Ruth is proposing marriage. Ruth is saying, I need a redeemer. I need someone to spread his wings over me. And Boaz's response is one, he's overjoyed. I think the passage teaches us that he is sort of an older guy. He could have been a a widowed guy, uh, maybe with no kids. And he is assuming that this young Moabite woman is going to look for somebody who is younger, more in the same age bracket as she is. And he's just feeling such a sense of joy that she has asked him to marry her and fulfill the role as kinsman redeemer. I think in some senses, Boaz's joy pictures the joy in heaven when a sinner comes to believe, right? When a sinner repents, heaven rejoices. He doesn't reject her because of her Moabite history. He doesn't reject her because she's a Gentile. He embraces her completely. But there's a deeper message here. It's interesting, she says, spread your wings over me. Boaz has said something similar. If you go over to chapter 2, verse 12, when Boaz, a couple of months prior to this, is talking, he says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's the same word, And it's interesting that same word is used. It's not not insignificant. 
Ruth has left the gods of Moab to come to Israel to seek the protection, to seek the covering of the God of Israel. And now Ruth is seeking shelter, security, protection under the sheltering wings of Boaz. Ruth was asking Boaz as God's representative in her life to protect her, to cover her in a practical and tangible way. So here's the point that I want to focus on for a second. You can't come to Israel's God unless you first come through his Redeemer. You can't come to Israel's God unless you come through his Redeemer. The only way to the Father is through the Son. Yes, Ruth was in Israel, but she wasn't really. How would she become in Israel? How would she become part, well, a kinsman redeemer? Someone who would redeem her, someone who would marry her and make her part of the family, the family of God. And the same is true of us. We can't come into a relationship with the God of Israel unless we come into a marriage covenant with the Redeemer, his Son, our Savior. You can't have a relationship with God apart from Jesus. You can't be in relationship with God apart from his Son. That's why Jesus says, no one can come to the Father but through me. You know, lots of people in our culture today believe, and I think as science develops, more and more people are going to be forced to the recognition that there is a God. As, as, as evolution and all of these theories that came up in the, the 19th and 20th century to debunk the reality of God, as all of this kind of crumbles under the, under the advancement of science, People are, are forced, I can see it, you just go on YouTube and see these atheists becoming Christians and say, yes, there's got to be a God. People recognizing that there must be a creator. It must have started with an intelligence. And science is showing us this plainly. It takes more faith now to believe in evolution than it does to believe in God. But believing in God doesn't save anyone. It's coming under the shelter of the living God by coming under the shelter of his redemptive son, the redeemer Christ. You see, that's, that's exactly what happens in the story. Ruth comes to Israel under the shelter of God, but she needed to come under the shelter of Boaz before she could really be in integrated into the family of Israel. The same is true of us, folks. You can't get to heaven by believing in God. It's going to be a big shock to Oprah. There are just so many others who are like that. I'm spiritual. I believe in God. Well, that's pointless. If Jesus said, and if he is Yahweh, and he is, that no one comes to the Father except through me, then it requires a relationship with God. You can't have redemption apart from Christ. Ultimately, Ruth couldn't have had redemption apart from Boaz. And so how is that redemption made possible? The last thing is this, the integrity that made redemption legal. Boaz knew the law. 
he, he understood what was required in Deuteronomy 25. But he understood that he was not the closest relative. He understood that integrity demanded that that relationship not be consummated in that moment. He understood that there was a process that had to be followed. The law required it. And so because of his integrity, he told her, just lay down and sleep. Tomorrow this thing will be settled. Before Ruth became his bride, the law had to be satisfied. And this is exactly what our redemption entailed. The law had to be satisfied. God's standards had to be met before we could become his bride. And so as a consequence, Jesus, as you know, lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. He qualified to become the final, ultimate, perfect sacrifice of sin. And then he went to the cross on our behalf. And he suffered in our place. God punished him for our sins. His, our iniquity fell upon him. The chastisement that brought us peace with God fell upon Jesus. He did what the law demanded. God didn't compromise his integrity. God didn't sort of turn his back on sin and say, oh, it doesn't matter. Let's just consummate this relationship illegitimately. He did not do that. There had to be integrity. The law of God had to be followed precisely in order for the righteousness of God to be maintained perfectly. The law had to be followed precisely in order that the righteousness of God be maintained perfectly. And Jesus accomplished that. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He became, therefore, qualified, the only man who ever could be qualified, to go to the cross on our behalf. And in those six hours, the most pivotal moments in all of history, God vented his wrath for you and me, on his son. He didn't just sort of say, let's just forget about it. I'm a loving, kind God. It's no big deal. I just love to forgive. He did none of that. The law said sin had to be punished, and it was punished to the nth degree on the cross for us. You see, your salvation has integrity. And that's why there is no way to come to the Father but through the Son. That's why every other religion in the world is illegitimate. Because it doesn't deal with sin and the law with the integrity that the Christian faith does. And so what Jesus did, and we'll see the same thing next week with Boaz and Ruth, Jesus legally and with perfect integrity entered into a marriage covenant with his bride. He purchased us with his blood. He redeemed us with integrity. And it's at the Last Supper where Jesus taught us to do this in remembrance of that act where we as the people of God, the bride of Christ, come and celebrate the fact that we have been purchased 
that we, like Ruth, have been redeemed, that God, by his grace, through the work of Christ, has spread his covering of righteousness over us, forgiven us, called us family. We're redeemed. So if you are part of the redeemed family of God, I want you to join now with the people of God in celebrating the marriage covenant that we have with, the bride, with our bridegroom, Christ. If you're not a believer, I just want you to think about this. You can't earn your salvation by being good, by being religious, by trying harder. You simply cannot make the grade. You can't do it. You can't. All that Christ requires is trust, believe, receive his forgiveness, rest in him. He loves you. He loves you. That's why he went to the cross. It was love that drove it. And he's the only way. There was no solution, nothing, no one, other than a relationship with God's son, Jesus, who did it all legally, with absolute integrity, that you might be saved. So if you've never come to that place in your journey where you have simply trusted and rested in the finished work of Jesus, if you've never come to that place where you say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I believe. I believe you went to the cross for me. I believe you paid the price for me. I'm gonna come down and lay at your feet and cover me with your righteousness. Do that, just trust, and then let's celebrate communion together. We're going to, I'm gonna lead you through communion. I'm gonna pray right now. When I finish praying, I'm gonna come. I'm gonna ask you to just, when you're ready, come and take the elements. Go back to your seat and I'll lead you through the, through the service together. But let me just pray. Father God, I, I thank you so much for the redemption that we have in Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you have pointed out to us, you have made us aware, sometimes that's been a painful experience, you've made us aware of our abject sinfulness, our poverty of spirit. But you've brought us to that place where we, we have nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to turn, to, nowhere else to go. And we've trusted you. You've shown us your love and you've spread your righteous covering over us. And now we rest in this legal relationship, this perfect relationship that we have with you. Lord, we're grateful for what you did on the cross. You lived the story of Boaz in such a more perfect, fuller, abundant, wonderful way. You laid your life down for us. You took it up again. You brought us into a relationship with yourself. Not because of works that we have done, not because of our righteousness, just because of your love. And you've told us to do this regularly to remember that love to fall in love again with the bridegroom 
coalesce together as a beautiful bride and just say how much we love you, how grateful we are, how glad we are to be home, to be safe, to be loved, to be secure, to know that there's nothing in life or in death that can harm us, that you're with us. You never leave us, forsake us, that we can trust you. So in a moment, Lord, we'll take these elements. But my prayer this morning is that you would hear from our collective heart, the collective heart of your bride, us whispering back to you, Lord, we love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the cross.